Welcome to One Other Thing, the official podcast of Virtua Physician Partners. I'm your host, Dan Master. At One Other Thing, we're here to dive deep into issues that matter most to you, the clinician of VPP. In the coming minutes, we're going to hear from Tarun Kapoor, Andy Cohen, and Rachel Parrott, all of whom will tell you how to best utilize clinical pharmacy for your practice and for your patients. Just as a little bit of context, Tarun is the president of VPP, Andy is the medical director of VPP, and Rachel is the manager of the VPP clinical pharmacy team. By the end of this episode, you'll know what VPP strategy is behind the use of clinical pharmacy, how Rachel will integrate with your care team, and what to look for in the future. But before we get into the conversations, Andy wanted to tell us an anecdote that hammers home exactly where clinical pharmacy fits into your clinical practice. So I had this 70, 75-year-old female patient that came to see me about a year or two ago. She was previously seeing a non-VMG, a non-VPP primary care provider, and uh, she came to see me on 15, 20-plus medications, and it was clear to me in just looking at her list that her medications didn't like each other. What was more concerning to me is that she was complaining of weakness, tremors, and just generalized instability. And I had a feeling that it was from her medication. So I ordered a bunch of labs and in the meantime started to wean her off some of her medications, but I didn't know which one to start with first. And unfortunately, while I was in the process of weaning off her medications, the weakness continued, it worsened, and she had a fall uh, resulting in a fracture. I think that had I had access to the clinical pharmacist, I think all of this could have been avoided. Keep Andy's anecdote in mind as you listen to the upcoming conversations. Now, let's go behind the scenes to hear what the clinical pharmacy strategy is for VPP from Tarun and Andy. You know, I I always think about the triple aim and, and the three components, better outcomes, better patient experience, as well as more cost-effective care. In pharmacy, ties into all of those components, right? With, without adequate pharmacy management, the, the cost is, is going to spiral out of control. You will not necessarily have the, the high-quality outcomes you want. And patients are tremendously confused uh, from, from on their experience on, on polypharmacy. You know, that's how I, I tend to see it from a, a more of a global strategic picture. Andy, from your perspective, what are you thinking? You know, what does it mean to the frontline clinician? It means the world, to tell you the truth. Um, we've seen evidence out in the literature that for every dollar you spend on a clinical pharmacist, you can save up to eightfold um, in costs just in focusing on transitions of care, medication reconciliation. You know, this is not the transitions of care that medication reconciliation that that I do in the practice or that my MA does in the practice. This is this is done by a licensed clinical pharmacist who who's really looking at medication to medication interaction, who's looking at fall risk, um, cost of care, uh, cost of the medications, and and and, and true compliance. Um, beyond that, I think the ability to um, refer to Rachel and her team. Um, for anybody that we identify as an at-risk patient uh, during day-to-day uh, office hours is going to be invaluable. 
I always find it interesting uh, that that people push back uh, at CMS and Health and Human Services for for their programs and their policies. But if you take a a closer look at what they're doing, specifically through the Comprehensive Primary Care Program, they've invested millions of dollars in care coordination payments, uh, et cetera. And and one of the things they've mandated to do the to, to get the funds, to keep the funds, is that you have to implement a clinical pharmacy program. So to that extent, you know, the government's putting their money where their mouth is. And so there's, there's something here that all of us can learn from. Yeah, I think that's right, Tarun. I mean, our patients are living longer, uh, having more um, complexities and nuances to their care now than ever before. The number of medications on the market is is spiraling at such a rapid rate that I think it's it's virtually impossible to to practice without the assistance of a clinical pharmacist in some way, shape, or form. So, Tarun, when I'm out in the uh, field and I'm talking to the clinicians in VPP, one of the things that they are the most frustrated about is this idea that when they order a medication, they feel it's clinically appropriate. They know it may need to have prior auth by the insurance company, by the payer. Do you believe that bringing in the clinical pharmacist can help and can be a major value add to our team? To answer that question, really we have to ask ourselves the question, why is the pre-authorization in place? And, and the idea behind that is there's probably a handful of, of folks who, quote, ruin it for everybody else, right? They either over-prescribe or inappropriately prescribe. And as such, everyone then has to jump through those hoops together. So the question then is, we want to get to a place where we say, let us police ourselves, right? Let, let us manage ourselves, hold each other accountable. I think every clinician out there would rather be held accountable by their partners inside of a clinically integrated network rather than a medical director of an insurance company, if it's even a medical director. Getting to a place where we can actually show, look, we are actually figuring out how to optimize the use of medications, how to minimize inappropriate prescribing or over-prescribing, and perhaps most importantly of all, showing that we can get our patients to actually take the medications so it's actually worth the payer or the insurance company paying for the medications. That's all the step of where we're going. This is one of those steps. If you can't do this step, it's going to be really hard for the negotiation and the management negotiating team and myself to go to and sit in front of an insurance company and say, we want to you know, get the first 1,000 pre-authorizations cleared off the books, we have to show the ability to take this interim step. So what it sounds like you're saying is that while we want this control of being able to write whatever we feel like we need to write for, the payer is saying, actually, you have to show us that first before we give you that permission? Yeah, that's, I believe exactly what they're saying is that if you want that control and you want that responsibility, show me you have mechanisms in place that you can do it. And, and show me the data and the performance measures. And, and in a one-sided model, a one-sided shared savings model, that's not an inappropriate request. We're, when we are in a risk-bearing model, then a lot of these hurdles go away. Because if we don't perform well, we have to pay money back. You don't want to be in a risk-bearing model unless you have the ability to actually do some of these things. The exposure is too high to the group. As such, these intermittent steps, like using a clinical pharmacist in a one-sided shared savings model, the very reasonable next step. Now, that was a great conversation, and I just want to underscore one point that was made during it. Optimize the use of medications. Now, 
Let's hear from Rachel Parrott, the manager of VPP's clinical pharmacy team. Just as a little bit of background on Rachel, Rachel is a graduate of Rutgers Doctor of Pharmacy program. Then she went on to hold positions in the Temple University Health System as well as Robert Wood Johnson and the University of Pennsylvania. Now, here is our conversation with Rachel. So can you just tell us what differentiates clinical pharmacy from other types of pharmacy that our listeners may be familiar with? Um, Well, that's a really good question. A clinical pharmacist is very focused on best practice evidence um, and scientific evidence to support what we're doing in clinical care. Um, So we focus very much on guidelines and um, clinical scientific resources in order to provide the best care for our patients. So, Rachel, many of our clinicians work with care managers, social workers, RNs, lead MAs, or quality improvement coordinators. How do you see your role in being a part of that care team? I am following up with um, patients in the VPP Covered Lives for transitions of care if they've been discharged to home care. Um, I'm also currently taking referrals for any high-risk patients in these patient populations as well. Eventually, the goal is once we have a much larger team, we are going to be much more integrated into the primary care practices, um, kind of focusing on the team-based approach that's suggested by the AMA Steps Forward um, program. Um, And eventually, what we would like to get to is doing these transitions of care on patients, um, high-risk patients discharged from the hospital, as well as comprehensive medication management for high-risk patients um, that would be kind of a continual process where the patients would generally be assessed by a clinical pharmacist, medication therapy would be evaluated, there would be a plan initiated, and the pharmacist would follow up to try to resolve any of these medication-related problems. So that sounds amazing. How, how do I even reach out to you, Rachel, if I need your help? Um, so in the event that a clinician would like to reach out to me for a patient who they would like to be um, assessed and evaluated by myself, uh, they can, if they're working in Epic, they can send a referral to a clinical pharmacist, and I will get that referral and reach out to the patient. Um, if they're not on Epic, they can always give me a call or email me, and I will follow up with the patient. In general, I try to collect a little bit of information prior to reaching out to the patient. Um, And then once I reach out to the patient and figure out any sort of medication-related problems, I will generally document in Epic. And if the clinician is in Epic, send them a message that I have evaluated the patient. Um, And if they're not in Epic, I can fax or deliver the report so that they can get that information um, that's actionable for the patient in the practice. So, Rachel, can you remind me again how I know which patients are appropriate for you to follow? Um, So just generally, if something seems off about a patient's medication regimen, so if they're not meeting their disease state goals, if you have an elderly patient who's a fall risk and you want their medication regimen assessed, um, if a patient's complaining of a lot of adverse effects, if they have a lot of questions about their medications, really... Any and all medication problems can be referred to a clinical pharmacist. It doesn't necessarily always have to be a very longitudinal process. It can kind of be a one-and-done assessment. Um, You know, I think that we could switch a couple of these things up, follow up with the patient, um, and then the loop can be closed if the problems are resolved. In general, is there like a certain number of medications that I should be looking for, though? Um, So... 
a seven or more would probably be a good um, level to set at if there's less, it, that's not an exclusionary criteria. So if the patient has less medications and they're having any sort of problems or not meeting disease state parameters, um, they can be referred. Got it. Got it. Thanks. Before we end the episode, we wanted to reiterate how to get in touch with Rachel. You can simply search for her on the Virtua or VPP directories to find her complete contact information. Or if you're on Epic, you could send her a referral for a patient who you think might qualify for clinical pharmacy. Now we thought we'd quickly include some up-to-the-minute stats. As of October 2nd, Rachel and her team have been involved in the care of over 330 patients. In addition, over 30% of primary care clinicians have proactively referred into this program. We just have one piece of housekeeping. We wanted to plug VPP's annual meeting, which is scheduled for October 24th. The annual meeting will be held at the Barry D. Brown Health Education Center at 106 Kearney Boulevard in Voorhees. I've included a link to VPP's listing of events in the show notes of this episode so you can see the details for yourself. If you're a VPP clinician, please make every effort to attend, as this will be an advanced clinical measure meeting in addition to VPP's annual gathering. We look forward to seeing you there. We're just about ready to sign off, but before we do, we just have to say that the content of this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Virtua Physician Partners. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any questions about the show or about the content that we just discussed, feel free to leave me an email at dmaster at virtua.org. We'll be back soon to discuss one other thing.